The word of the Lord from Isaiah 45, reading verses 9 to 13. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? For your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was stretched out, or with my hands it stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And thanks be to the Lord for his word. Uh, complaining is not an enterprise uh, that served uh, the nation of Israel well. Uh, we certainly know this from uh, the Old Testament. Often the outcome was a judgment and the anger of the Lord. Uh, in our text this morning, uh, it is a heavy-handed rebuke on behalf of the prophet uh, to the nation of Israel because of their complaining. Uh, the context of the complaint is God's choice of Cyrus to deliver them. They're not happy with uh, who God is going to use. Their expectations uh, were for Messiah or some new Moses or perhaps uh, a king after the manner of uh, their forefather, the great king Israel, David, who would come and reestablish perhaps the Davidic kingdom. It's a good reminder, though, is it not, that oftentimes the source of our own complaining are putting our expectations upon God. What precisely their expectations were, I know not, but I do know that they are complaining because that is our text this morning, and that their national pride is chafing that God would use a Gentile. And so in verses 9 to 10, God rebukes them, uh, and then he answers them in verses 11 to 13. Let's begin first with uh, the explicit rebuke uh, for their complaining. Uh, it's in, in the form of uh, two uh, reprimands uh, begun by the simple word woe. It appears twice in our text. Uh, verse 10, woe to him. Uh, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. And of course, initially it's described as a complaint against uh, uh, God. The Hebrew word complaining is often used in the Old Testament for a lawsuit, uh, something we're quite familiar with in our culture. We uh, don't like something that someone's done to us, so what do we do? Well, we sue them. It seems to be a very common response. Uh, 
what's occurring here and bring a suit against God. They're going to get their lawyers together and uh, sue him uh, for uh, picking Cyrus or choosing what they consider to be an improper person. Uh, again, God is the defendant. He's not just the defendant in the lawsuit. He's the one who formed them, who made them, who created them. Uh, the rebuke, of course, is tied to the theology of creation uh, with the distinctive, this is a very important point, that the creator has every right to do whatever he wishes to do with his creatures. Uh, it's a very telling understanding of theology. It is everywhere uh, in the book of Isaiah, certainly in the chapters we've been studying, that God is doing because he's the creator. And the creator has total control and absolute right over everything that he does with his creatures and with that which he creates. Simply the logic of the theology. But again, he's reminding the nation that he is the one who formed them. Now, the first woe uh, is the metaphor of the potter and the clay. That's not something that we are intimately acquainted with because generally uh, we go to the store and we buy dishes or whatever that's already been made for us. But in the ancient Near East, uh, the potter was a very prominent figure and uh, certainly uh, everyone needs a pot every now and then or a new pitcher or a new plate. And so potters were, again, uh, uh, somewhat uh, prevalent and you could, you could instinctively understand the theology because uh, the potter has absolute control over the process and the product. And at no point in the process is uh, the pot saying, hey, Lord, can you kind of hold up here? I don't really agree with what you're doing. Uh, can we do it a different way? Uh, I don't want the handle there. I want it here. And again, you can fill in the rest of the blanks. But it is a powerful motif as an expression of the sovereignty of God to do with as he wills to do, and that we are all clay in his hand. He has absolute control over the process and the product. He has something else. What is that? Ownership. From this motif, we have the absurdity of the pot saying, what do you think you're doing? You don't even have any hands. We don't like the way you're doing it. The absurdity of that is that which the prophet is bringing before the nation. Uh, the translation is, you don't know what you're doing, God. Uh, and therefore, maybe slow down or settle down and let us give you our advice. The way we want it done. Epidemic in our culture, we want it our way, do we not? Uh, in a sense, they are telling God what? You are not qualified to make us and to do with that which you desire to do in selecting Cyrus. You just don't get it. We may not use those words in our lives, but that's the outcome of the theology here in uh, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, so is God qualified? Well, again, that's the whole point of the fact that he's, he's the sovereign creator. Uh, something of this in uh, the book of one of the wisest men that's ever lived, book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 8 and verse 4. A story about a man who loses his way. Something checks him. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 4. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? The word of the Lord is authoritative. Whatever God does is authoritative. He knows what he's doing by virtue of the fact that he is God. He has all knowledge of everything actual and possible because he is God. Good application to us and the things that he does in our lives that we know that uh, he acts in our lives because he is sovereign and uh, equated with his sovereignty is every other attribute of his omniscience and wisdom and love and mercy. We don't just have a potter and a pot. We have a potter who is infinitely merciful and kind and gracious and full of love towards everything that he makes uh, respecting his children and the church. I understand the theology. Sometimes we don't like what he does and the way that he does it and when he does it and every other permutation you might add. But it is the greatest of comfort to know that God acts upon us out of mercy and loving kindness before the foundation of the world. That All of his attributes are attached to the attribute of his sovereignty. And therefore, sometimes we can leave things alone and be at rest. Another text that speaks to this matter is a colleague of Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, chapter 18, the sixth verse. Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. That God is affirming his sovereignty to say nothing of all of his other attributes. One of the reasons we, or perhaps I should say I complain, is uh, I need to reacquaint myself with the attributes of God. One of the reasons I think that our culture is filled with complaining is that we don't study who God is anymore. So we have nothing to check up. It needs to be different, of course, at Grace Bible Church, that we have a clear understanding of who God is and the fullness of how he describes himself in Holy Scripture. And to us as the church, he deals with us based upon his mercy and loving kindness in Jesus Christ. The the theology here, as you know, is, uh, I think, one of the most difficult theological propositions in all of Scripture. Uh, But... Uh, Scripture, of course, addresses it as it should, uh, that God is sovereign, not just in terms of position, but in everything that he does, he is sovereign. Shorter catechism, he governs all his creatures and all their actions. Not just my theology, it's theology of the Scripture, the theology of the Puritans. Providence of God. I understand Who cares about the Puritans? What do they know? They don't know anything. Again, one of the reasons our culture is so filled with complaining is that we don't look to our forefathers and the majesty of the record that they left us and their understanding of Scripture. The Puritans knew and understood. And you think of the times in which they lived, ladies and gentlemen. Incredibly difficult, incredibly hard, incredible political turmoil. Practice of medicine, not even in its infancy, but they embraced 
the providence of God governed all of his creatures and all of their actions. And they could rest in the hand of God. It's a theology that's uh, found in one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 9. Trust you have your New Testament, you can turn there, uh, you can trace the argument together. Um, the context is uh, about the future of Israel. Uh, I believe the answer of the future of Israel is that God's going to save a remnant from the nation, the ethnic nation of, of Israel. And again, I say that because of the text. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. It's clear to me that God's going to save a remnant. And not everyone that belongs to the ethnic nation of Israel is going to be saved. I think that's what that text is saying. It's buttressed by verse 7. Neither are all... The they all, pardon me, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendant, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. In other words, God is simply going to call a remnant out of the nation. It's going to be traced. He's going to trace that remnant for us. Uh, perhaps it's as stated as clearly as can be in verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. So God is going to save a remnant, and he is affirming his right to choose whomever he wills, namely the remnant, however they're constituted. And Paul traces this remnant through the child of promise in Isaac in contrast to the child of the flesh in Ishmael. Next, he illustrates the truth through Rebekah's twins, for Jacob was chosen and Esau was hated or rejected. Again, so theology of the remnant, and God is tracing that remnant for us through a specific line, a specific seed, if you will. And Paul affirms the divine right in election, Romans chapter 9 and verse 15, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul affirms the divine right in reprobation and hardening. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Again, I understand it's very difficult theology, but uh, simply the word of the Lord. Let me expand on this just a little bit uh, because a uh, fairly popular answer to this stemming from the book of Exodus. Yeah, God hardens Pharaoh, but something else happens, doesn't it? Uh, he, he hardens himself, doesn't he? The text says that in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, I simply want to give an answer uh, to that uh, theology to show that the scripture is consistent, that God hardens whom he wills. I'm not denying that we don't harden ourselves. Uh, I'm not affirming that God is the author of evil. Uh, I'm just simply affirming that God is sovereign. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh was a false god. He is messing with God's people. 
It's a very dangerous thing to mess with God's people. And God's going to destroy Pharaoh. I say that to comfort for all of you who may in your life or in the history of your life or your forefathers or parents or grandparents or maybe even your children, that the world is going to always persecute the church. And God will destroy those who mess with his people. And Pharaoh is an illustration of that. Exodus chapter 8 and verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. And so some people say, well, see, Pharaoh was sovereign and God was sovereign. They're both two railroad tracks that we can never bring together. The problem with that theology is the rest of the verse. And did not listen to them as the Lord had said. In every occasion, I think save one time, every time it's mentioned that Pharaoh hardened his, his own heart, we have the appendage according to the word of the Lord. In other words, the word of the Lord sets it all in motion in light of the sovereignty and the majesty of God and his control as a potter over the clay. And Pharaoh did what he did according to the word of God because the word of God sets it in motion. Namely, God is sovereign over every event and every occurrence in his creation. I understand the theology is difficult and troubling. I'm only affirming that that is the truth of the scripture. An antagonist in Romans 9 asks the question over responsibility and fault. Well, if that's the way that it is, the antagonist is saying, Romans chapter 9 and verse 19, you will then say to me, why does he still find fault? Or who resists his will? It is here that Paul alludes to Isaiah chapter 45 in the text that we have read this morning in our study this morning with the potter clay motif. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Question answering question denying our right to question God. A simple affirmation of the sovereignty of God. Some of you, I think, uh, engage on occasion in different crafts. Maybe you make a quilt or you fire some dishes. Whatever the case might be. Does your quilt ever say to you, hey, hey hold up. Uh, I don't want the stitch there. Put it somewhere else. Very simple yet powerful metaphor. That God is the creator. And he knows what he's doing. And as God, he has absolute right to choose whomever he wills in a remnant and in Cyrus. And that is the simple answer that the prophet Isaiah from the word of the Lord, gives to the nation in the midst of their complaining. The explanation is the divine right of God. It is his call. And more than that, in light of all of the attributes of God that we ought to bring to these texts, God knows what he is doing. Israel's question is a complaint about choice, but the choice is God's and not theirs. The second rebuke, uh, Isaiah chapter 45, uh, is in, of course, uh, verse 10. 
uh, we transition from the potter and the clay uh, to a child and his parents. Simply the same theology, but a different uh, way to look at it, but it is just as powerful. Uh, Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 10 is the parallel. An imaginary child questions father and mother as to his birth. Think about that in terms of theology. None of us, of course, has any determination whatsoever over where we were born, but think about that in terms of God's blessing to you. America, or in the slums that I've seen in Venezuela, my own homeland, or in the lowest possible class whatsoever in India, Sovereignty there, of course, is staggering, but it humbles us and checks us and reminds us how blessed we are as a people in the midst of the fact that we are sometimes too prone to complain. The point is that the child has no say in the matter whatsoever, and neither does Israel. A text that I oftentimes uh, repair to in light of a very long book that's filled with complaints, namely the book of Job, where very bad things happen to Job. And he has some friends that are trying to provoke him to complain. Uh, but when you look at the uh, end of the book, uh, we have a dissertation of God as creator, God simply asked Job, Job, where were you when I framed the world? I set the stars. I put boundaries around the oceans. Think of the majesty of God in all of that, his knowledge of physics and engineering, his omniscience in everything, and the way that he did it in all of his perfections. And, of course, it checks Job. It checks his complaining, and he humbles himself before God. And I think that there is a lesson here to all of us because I confess to you, I complain on occasion uh, that understanding the theology turns our complaining into trusting in light of who God is. In our text this morning, we, we transition from an open rebuke, uh, from metaphor to the word in verses uh, 11 to 13. And the theology is, is more explicit here. Uh, God questions their rights. You ask me about the future of my sons? Who are you? Do you name the future? Do you control it? God is saying, of course, I control the future because I'm God. God controls the future and he commands the outcome. He's the creator and he commands the host, that God is the supreme commander of everything, and he's going to command Cyrus to rise up to attack Babylon so he can set Israel free, that Cyrus is his subordinate, as all of us are, and that God is right in raising him up and making his way easy and affecting the outcome based entirely upon who he is, meaning that whatever he does is right and good. It is a reminder, I think, that in understanding the sovereignty of God, at some point our complaining turns to trusting. 
I think as well sometimes our complaining turns to uh, a praising spirit, a thankful spirit in light of who God is. One of my favorite hymns, Blessed Assurance. I mean, you know the refrain, this is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. At some point, if you understand that God marshals all of his attributes in light of all of the actions in your life, at some point we become silent and our struggles and the mysteries of our lives turn to thanking God and praising God. There's another very important line in that text that speaks to the sovereignty of God. Perfect submission. You know the rest? I know you do. Perfect submission, all is at rest. This reminder that on occasion, as Christians in our fallenness, we do complain, we struggle. I understand there are difficult issues in life, heavy bags to carry. But the hymnist is telling us, Perfect submission, all is at rest. When uh, John Calvin was fired by the city fathers in Geneva, I I've, haven't read everything that Calvin's ever written. I probably haven't read 20% of everything he's ever written, but uh, I've read his response. He doesn't write Pharaoh a terrible letter saying, you wronged me, you brought me here. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be in this mess. You know what he says? He's fired from his work, and he's leaving the city because of the city fathers have fired him, and he says it comes from God. Therefore, it is good. Calvin knew the sovereignty of God, and he knew it in the fires of suffering, not only personally, but in his life's work. It comes from God, therefore it is good. He understood the hymnist who said, perfect submission, all is at rest. Well, Christians complain. The prophet Jeremiah is an illustration of that. Uh, he is complaining over the bitterness of the fall of the city that he loved, Jerusalem, in Babylon taking the nation away into captivity. And he, he writes a book called Lamentations. It's a lament. He's brokenhearted. It's interesting in the laments of Scripture, the book of Lamentations, at some point you're going to read a confession of the sovereignty of God that checks the lament. We have that exactly in Lamentations chapter 5 and verse 19. Thou, O Lord, dost rule forever. Thy throne is from generation to generation. What slams into the lamentation of the prophet Jeremiah, sovereignty of God. And I might add that at some point in the difficulties of our lives that complaining turns to trusting and waiting upon the Lord. Because who God is, 
not just that he's sovereign, but he marshals all of his attributes in all of his actions. We find this in a particular form of psalm, lament psalms, in which the psalmist is complaining. He's in trouble, and he, he complains sometimes bitterly before God. Let's look at one such psalm, Psalm 74. Look at one such, because I understand every now and then you perhaps complain. Psalm 74, verse 1, O God, why hast thou rejected us forever? Why does thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? It's a pretty bitter complaint. My proposition is, is in all of the lament psalm, eventually you're going to come to the theology of the sovereignty and the majesty of God that checks the complaining of the psalmist so he turns to praise. And we have that in Psalm 74 and verse 12. Yet God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. Complaining, checked by sovereignty, and I might add sovereignty turning to trusting and praising God in light of who he is and the way that he does whatever he does. Well, we complain and God answers. We live in a fallen world. And the chief answer that God gives to each of us is Jesus. This is very important theology. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. And our Lord suffered infinitely upon the cross as the God-man. And there is a reminder here as to how he responded from uh, the prophet Isaiah. It's a text I know you're familiar with, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep uh, that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. He commended his spirit to God and cried in his great prayer, thy will be done. And he effects the greatest rescue operation of all time upon the cross to secure safe passage for all of his people. It is good to remember in the depths sometimes of despair that God has given us his son as the final answer. And it is a blessed answer to be sure for all who know him. That everything that God does is purposeful and is used to affect our sanctification. That in his providence and sovereignty there are no accidents and certainly no mistakes in light of who God is. Illustration of this in the Word of God in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. 
Uh, the verb here that begins this text is a present imperative speaking to continuous action. Do all things. Continue to do all things without grumbling and disputing. All things. That's difficult, but that's the imperative that the Apostle Paul brings to the church. Do all things in that absent complaining. There's a couple very powerful allusions in this text that speak to the nation of Israel in verses 14 and 15. Uh, their practice, what did they do? They complained. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, the description of the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. Paul, of course, had occasion to complain, did he not? Look at it in the text. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and services of your faith, I rejoice in sharing my joy with you all. Paid a terrible price for serving the church. Poured out as a drink offering, utterly expendable in the cause and the purposes of Jesus Christ. Uh, but I, I like his answer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak from one, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. The Apostle Paul had to have understood clearly the sovereignty of God, marshaled with all of the attributes of God to find contentment in all of the affairs of his life. But he gives us another answer, does he not? In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That in all of our difficulties and all of the bitter issues of life, we are never alone. God is yet with us in all things. The context of Philippians chapter 4 is their financial provision. For Paul, he is thanking them for their gift while reminding them of the overarching necessity of contentment in all circumstances. Something, of course, to aspire to in light of the fact that Christ is with us and that God dispatches his spirit to be with us, to strengthen and to empower us. One of my favorite places to repair in light of my own personal complaining is a Philippian, pardon me, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. The context is a series of exhortations given the trials of life. And Peter begins with the divine order of humility under the mighty hand of God. Again, a metaphor of the sovereignty of God. And notice the purpose clause, in order that he may exalt you at the proper time. That is ultimately God's design in all of our sufferings and all of our difficulties, all of our struggles, that he will exalt us at the right time and that he controls time as well. Probably a reference uh, to the end time resurrection in which we are glorified, but whatever it is, God controls time, and he will exalt his children at the right time, teaching us patience and to wait and to be humble, that God will make it right in light of who he is, that we can wait upon the Lord, 
but it's not a detached resignation. Peter acknowledges that trials generate needs to which he says, give them to God. Casting all your anxiety or all your cares upon him because he cares for you. The verb for cast is used only here and in Luke chapter 19 and verse 35 of the apostolic company placing their garments upon the colt that Jesus might sit upon them. In other words, saddle your difficulties on the Lord. Place them upon God. Peter bids us to give the temporal to the eternal because he cares for us. And by the way, the apostle Peter knew this word from personal experience. Mark chapter 4 and verse 38. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Again, Jesus. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? They're caught in the midst of a storm. Jesus is asleep and they're troubled, rowing, worried, praying, whatever it is they were doing, probably complaining. What did he bring us out here for? Put us to death? I mean, what gives, Lord? Verse 39, and being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. He said to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the seas obey him. All the storms of life. Jesus cares for us. And he's in control of even storms. Peter uh, is quoting uh, verse 7 from Psalm 55. Very instructive uh, verse, Psalm 55 and verse 22. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. Context, of course, is very instructive because David is in grave distress, distress pardon me, because a dear friend has betrayed him. There's nothing as painful as being betrayed by a friend or a family member. It's exactly what's happened to David. To David. In fact, he's in grave peril because he's been betrayed. It caused him great harm. And what does David do? He, he repairs to God and his promises. What's the promise? Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken because God is sovereign, because he marshals all of his attributes with his sovereignty and whatever happens to his children, he will sustain us. We will not be shaken. We will not slip. We will not fall. We will not fail because we are his children. And the promise invokes David's faith and resolve. Look at the final line in the verse, but I will trust in you. And that is the point of the sovereignty of God in the midst of our complaining, that sovereignty generates trusting. We trust God. Complaining moves to trusting, waiting upon the Lord. He will fix it in his own way, in his own time, and make it all right, because of who he is. Well, I simply make the confession to you that I'm uh, known on occasion to be a complainer. I suspect on occasion you do too.
but let us also marshal with our struggles and our difficulties the majesty of who God is. Rest in him. Hope in him. Wait upon him. Praise him. He'll make it right in his own time. The faith in the sovereignty of God is the ultimate antidote to complaining. Israel flunked. It's my prayer that in the grace of God at Grace Bible Church, our complaining will always eventuate in trusting and waiting and praising. And may God, by his marvelous spirit, make it so.